0: Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences video podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here in the studio today and joined first remotely by Lauren DeMoss, a healthcare attorney with Maynard Nexon. Lauren, great
1: to be with you. Thanks so much, Heather, great to be here.
0: And Lauren and I are joined by two other Maynard Nexon attorneys today, David Garrett and Stephen Davis. They oversee the law firm's immigration and global mobility law practice. And today they are going to talk a little bit more about healthcare companies and how they can leverage the international pool of medical professionals. David and Stephen, thank you both for joining us.
2: Good to be
3: here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
0: would you start us off by giving us an overview of the current state of the international physician market? And what U.S. employers are both looking for and considering.
2: Sure. You know, demand for physicians and healthcare workers has never been higher in the United States. Congress artificially capped a number of residency slots in the 1990s by the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. And this, in large part, has led to today's growing physician shortage. Even if residency slots are added, it's going to take years before any noticeable effects are going to be seen on this. Despite this, there's been a growing number of foreign national doctors who attend medical school abroad and complete residency in the United States. For example, a recent study found that almost 18% of physicians in Tennessee are IMGs or international medical graduates. And as a result, many hospital systems and physician practices are looking to place international medical talent into their talent pools. Compounding this problem, the demand isn't only for doctors there are thousands and thousands of foreign trained healthcare workers that are already here in the States. In fact, a a recent study found that nearly 40% of immigrants with healthcare professional and doctorate degrees are not using their education and training because of state and federal law hurdles to enter back into practice. Examples of these hurdles are things uh, like repetitive residency requirements or restrictive licensing requirements. Um, some states are seeking ways to reduce these hurdles for these already competent professionals, so that they can come and work in healthcare, especially in medically underserved areas.
1: You know, David, you mentioned some of those hurdles, and we know it can be burdensome for a healthcare system here to employ a physician who's an IMG or international medical graduate. So, if a health system, I guess, from their perspective, is is looking at it. What are their biggest hurdles? You know, maybe the 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 IMGs, the graduate has completed kind of his or her training and done the additional residency, but what's what's the hurdle for the health system?
2: Yeah, Uh, you know, most most physicians pursuing graduate medical education in the United States, they do so as a J one visa exchange visitor. They're sponsored by the ECFMG. That's the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. To qualify, among several other things, the IMG, they need to show that they are proficient in the English language, and they need to obtain a statement of need from their home country's Ministry of Health. A key hurdle is that upon completion of the medical training in a J-1 visa status, the physician then needs to return back to their home country or their last place of residence for two years in order to satisfy the Immigration and Nationality, Nationality Act 212E's home residency requirement. So, getting a a waiver of that two-year home residency requirement is a key issue that recruiters need to be aware of.
0: Speaking of that waiver, how does a physician get one? And and then, does it apply to the spouse as well, if there is one? Yeah.
2: You know, the, the 212E home residency requirement can be a really tricky one, and it requires some planning on the front end of recruitment. So, all foreign physicians who receive their graduate medical training in the U.S. and a J Weaver, uh, they have to return to their home country or to the last country of residence for an aggregate two years, or they can obtain a waiver of that requirement before they can become eligible to apply for almost any other type of visa. This applies to their visa to their, uh, to their spouses, to their dependents, and in, in any of their foreign-born nas- uh, children, as long as they are of all foreign nationals. Uh, J-1 waiver, those are obtainable. They can be granted on three different bases. The first one is that if the physician would suffer persecution in their home country, if the home residency requirement were enforced. The second basis is if there would result an exceptional hardship to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident spouse or child, if the home residency requirement were enforced. Or third, which is the most common one, is that the physician makes a commitment to practice in an underserved area of the United States for at least three years. So the vast majority of physicians seek a waiver upon the recommendation of an interested governmental agency. We call it an IGA. Um, In exchange for for the commitment to practice full-time clinical medicine for a period of three years in a federally designated area, as a health professional shortage area, that's an HPSA, or a medically underserved area or population, an MUA or MUP, or at a facility that's operated by the Department of Veterans Affairs, a VA facility. So a physician that's seeking a clinical g one waiver, they must seek a qualifying job offer as they near the completion of their residency or fellowship training. Depending on where the position is gonna be located, there might be only one suitable IGA, Or on the other hand, there might be several that could be used. Once the physician has committed to a qualifying offer of employment, the very, very convoluted process of seeking a J-1 waiver that begins. The application has to work its way through three different agencies. First, the the IGA itself, and then the US State Department, and finally back to the US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Approval from all three are a prerequisite to changing to a visa classification that would be suitable for the intended employment. The most common type of IGA approval is called a Conrad 30 waiver. This is a federal program that allows additional recruitment uh, options for states that are trying to improve health care in predominantly rural underserved areas. This is administered by each uh, uh, state health department in each state and also in the District of Columbia. Each one of these um, areas have uh, an active Conrad 30 program and each state health department is permitted to sponsor up to 30 GA1 waiver applications per fiscal year. So and of this 30, 20 are for physicians who are gonna be working in a federally designated shortage area And then there's up to 10 for physicians who will practice in locations that may not be in a shortage area, but who will nevertheless um, treat medically underserved patient populations. We call those flex spots. Now, the rules are really complex, and they have slight to sometimes significant variations from state to state. So it's essential for health practices to work with an experienced law firm in order to be successful on a Conrad 30 waiver.
1: Yeah, David, and you mentioned, I mean, you know, the different levels of approval it has to get through. And I just know from from our work there, you know, there are certain provisions that have to go in these qualified employment offer employment agreements for or recruitment agreements or whatever the circumstances for the international medical graduate, you know, under the J-1 waiver program. So and it's very prescriptive, right, in terms of what those contract provisions have to say. Yeah, Yeah. to your point, someone needs to be looking at them. (laughs)
2: From the very beginning of recruitment, because some of those, uh, rest- there, there can be restrictions that are placed into the deployment contract itself, and they could be different from state to state. You know, so one state might allow something like they might allow a non-compete clause that, uh, that perhaps the, the hospital requires of all their physicians, but another state might not let that. And that's just one of very, uh, a lot of different significant uh, differences. And that can be very helpful. And I think it's key for the recruiters at hospitals to know upfront when they're talking to IMGs.
1: Switching gears a little bit, you know, we've talked about the physician shortage, but I think, you know, there's also other clinicians and specifically a shorting uh, with nurses. So, Stephen, thinking about this process that David's described and how it applies to physicians, is it different for nurses or does it look similar?
3: It is completely different for nurses. And as you mentioned, nursing is a shortage occupation and also included there are physical therapists. So for nurses and physical therapists, we have a process called the Schedule A green card. And what Schedule A means is that the Department of Labor determined years ago that these were shortage occupations and that because of that, we don't have to go through what's called the mandatory PERM recruitment process. So backing up a little bit, anytime an employer sponsors a foreign national for permanent residency, which is what we're talking about here for the nurses or the physical therapists, You have to conduct a labor recruitment test, and that process is to show that we've done a good faith recruitment and that we can't find a qualified U.S. worker for this position. Well, again, years ago, Department of Labor said that would be useless for nurses. We know we've got a nursing shortage. We know we've got a physical therapist shortage. So we're going to take that step out of the process. So early on, uh, this was referred to as a, a fast track green card, if you will. But these days, uh, it's not that fast. And I'll talk through the steps and and what that would look like for both the employer and, and the foreign national nurse. So let's just take a hypothetical case and say, you've got a nurse who's applied for the job and she is somewhere, let's say she's in Kenya and she wants to come uh, and have an RN job in the U.S., After the hospital has identified her um, and if they're doing this process for the first time, the first thing they have to do is file what's called a prevailing wage request with the Department of Labor. And the prevailing wage request is the job description, the RN job description, and it includes what those job duties and responsibilities are and the geographic location. Uh, lately, like many things with Department of Labor and USCIS, there is a major backlog with these prevailing wage requests. And what used to take two to three months is now taking, in some cases, up to nine months. So we file the prevailing wage request and then we wait. And then in that end time, you know, meantime, we could start to intake and get what we need from the foreign national nurse. But we can't take really any other active steps. Uh, Once we get a prevailing wage determination, that is the Department of Labor telling us this is what we have to pay the foreign national nurse at the time he or she gets the green card. Um, At that point, as I mentioned, we get to skip the recruitment step and then we can go straight to sponsoring the foreign national nurse for permanent residency. So that is a key piece. A, A nurse can't come in on his or her own on this Schedule A green card. They have to have an employer sponsor them. And then we prepare what's called the I-140 petition. And I won't go through all all the requirements, but we basically have to show that we have a job offer for the foreign national nurse. The foreign national nurse also has the certifications. She or he is an RN in their home country. Um, They have to pass certain uh, certifications that show that they have their their education is equivalent to uh, an RN degree in the U.S., And then we file that petition with USCIS. Uh, That can actually be a faster process. Uh, Premium processing is available for those. And premium processing means the application could be approved in as little as two weeks. Um, Then we get to the last step of the process and it's more waiting. Uh, So the last step is where the foreign national nurse will apply for his or her green card at a U.S. embassy or consulate in their home country. The major issue we're seeing right now, and this actually started in April of this year, is that there is something each month that the Department of State releases called the Visa Bulletin. And the Visa Bulletin tells the foreign national nurse when they are eligible to file that last step of the green card process. In April this year, we had what was called major retrogression. Uh, so think of it this way. You you have a what's called a priority date, which was the date that step two of this process. The I-140 was approved, was was filed, actually. And then you have to wait until your priority date becomes what's called current. And in this case with foreign national nurses. Under the retrogression, we're seeing probably going to be about. As of, as of right now, up to another two-year wait before they can file that last step of the process. Uh, the last estimate I saw was we could be early to mid 2025 before they can file that last step. So just in our own practice right now, we've got hundreds of foreign national nurses who have made it all the way to the end, except for actually getting to schedule their green card interview. So when we get to that state, uh, and they do go to the interview at the embassy. After that, they get the green card. They're able to come into the U.S. And then they are able to start working for us as foreign national nurses or, as I mentioned earlier, physical therapists.
0: Stephen, multiple year wait. I mean, I, that takes practicing your patients to a whole nother level um, and investment of time. It, it, is there any other alternative
3: for them? It it. There's no alternative for the foreign nationals who are who are outside the country right now waiting for the green card. However, there could be alternatives in certain other visa categories. And what I mean by that is, first, I was talking about the green card with the Schedule A. We also have non-immigrant visas which allow foreign national nurses to come here on a faster track and for shorter periods of time. And the one I really want to mention, the one that's most applicable here is the TN visa. And a key consideration there, to be eligible for the TN, you have to be a Canadian or a Mexican national. Um, And for the TN, there is a specific category for registered nurses, as well as for physical therapists. Uh, Comparing a TN case to a green card case, we could have someone here on a TN in as little as really a, probably a week. Uh, and once you get a TN, it can be eligible for up to three years and it can be extended really indefinitely as long as you maintain your your non-immigrant intent uh, that you're not going to immigrate to the U.S., um, there's ways around that too, but that's a topic for a, a, a different day. But for right now, we can say TN is, is a short-term option. Now, going to the, the hypothetical I mentioned earlier, you know, we've got the nurse in, in Kenya, That the TN is not going to help her. Uh, unfortunately, the, the TN available for the Canadian nationals, the Mexican nationals still have to show that they satisfy the, the RN criteria and that their degree is the equivalent to a U.S. RN degree but much, much faster track to get RNs here. Uh, Another thing I will mention is that hospitals, physician groups, they have the ability to recruit from colleges and universities who have foreign national students who are already enrolled here. So let's take the case of someone who just graduated with an RN degree and they're a foreign national. They are eligible for what's called OPT, Optional Practical Training. And that will give them one year of work authorization in the U.S. without the employer having to sponsor them. Um, So good news there. They could be onboarded very quickly. The downside is they're only going to get one year of work authorization. So what do we have to do to keep them longer? We have to go back to the first process we talked about, which is Schedule A. And we have to start that very soon after they start employment. Now, before retrogression became an issue this year, and I say just this year, it has become issues on and off throughout through, throughout the past decade, but this severe retrogression of the past several months, before that became effective, we were able to simultaneously start the green card process and actually file what is the last step of the process if, in the, if you're in the U.S., which is the I-485, and keep them working, mostly without any interruption of employment. So we would have situations where their OPT was about to expire, the optional practical training, but then we were able to get an employment authorization document that we were authorized to file based on their pending green card case. So we had some seamless transitions and that is why a lot of foreign national nurses in the US were able to keep, keep working up until the point that their green card was approved. Um, I think what we're going to see now is if the retrogression is is not fixed and we will know a lot more in the next week or so uh, when the October visa bulletin comes out, which is the start of the new fiscal year. If if we're still going to see that severe backlog, you're going to have foreign national nurses who went to school here, who trained here, who may work for a year and then may have to leave the U.S. for, for a year or even longer and if the employer is still in, you know, engaged with them and wants to sponsor them, eventually brings them back uh, on a green card. So it can be a long process. And um, our clients and the foreign nationals, they are all very eager uh, to, to get it resolved as quickly as they can.
2: You know, one of the biggest differences between physicians and nurses is that for nurses, they have very limited options for a non-immigrant visa. You know, generally we're talking about TN. Um, in very, very limited circumstances, can a nurse ever qualify for an H-1B? On the other hand, for physicians, it's a little bit different. While there are several options for physicians on a non-immigrant visa, this is primarily the H-1B, the E-3, or the O-1, um, their, physicians do not have the advantages that nurses have with Schedule A. So there's no fast track for a physician. Physicians typically either need to go through the traditional type of recruitment, that's, we call it a PERM labor certification, where we have to do a labor market test, which often is, is, is kind of strange, you know, because we're doing a labor market test in an area that we know that already there's a physician shortage, um, but it's one of the regulatory hurdles that we do. Or uh, sometimes a physician can qualify for national interest waiver, which can then, you know, go straight to a green card. Um, however, you know the, the, some of the big differences between the two, the, the different professions, is that you know nurses and physical therapists they have the benefit of being listed on Schedule A at the U.S. Department of Labor, while physicians are not.
0: One final question for y'all, if and maybe both of you would like to address this: if a physician practice or a healthcare entity is thinking about recruiting a foreign national for the first time what would be your recommendation? Is there a, something something they need to do first and second before or think about before they even start this process?
2: Yeah, I think the very first thing that uh, that the hospital uh, or physicians group, you know, if they're looking you know to tap into international uh, talent pool should be to talk to an experienced attorney in this area. Uh, there are lots of, of gotchas throughout the process. And there's lots of differences and regional differences too. Something that might be true in Alabama could be very, very untrue in South Carolina or North Carolina or Tennessee. Um, So uh, I think, you know, engaging early on with experienced counsel is, is, is a great help. Also know and understand that it's going to take a long time, you know, for both physicians and nurses.
3: Definitely. And I would add there specifically to nurses, it, uh, you know, get started early. I mean, once you do uh, get get working with an attorney or group on this, get started early, you know the process is gonna take a long time. And that's what a lot of our clients are saying right now is, okay, we know it's gonna be 2025, 2026 until we probably get them, but we know we're gonna need them. Like we know just (laughs) nothing's going to change. There's gonna be a shortage. Let's go ahead and start planning today. Let's go ahead and put the steps in place. And maybe along the way, things speed up. Retrogression is is not as big of an issue in a year or two. Um, there are some certain uh, lobbying legislative uh, efforts out there to fix this problem. So I, I tell clients, let's let's get started, and uh, I don't think you'll regret it. You'll eventually we'll eventually get there.
0: Well, Stephen Davis, Dave Garrett, thank you both so much for joining us on behalf of Lauren and the entire Taking the Pulse crew. Um, you know, you, you bring valuable information to this podcast on a very complex Issue just listening to you for the past twenty minutes. I think it's probably a good thing if we have you back, or if you alert us if retrogression does ease up. That would be good for everybody to know. But we thank you for joint. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, happy to help.
0: And for those of you who are viewing this video podcast, we hope you learned, you probably learned a lot in this session. And if you have any questions about any of the topics covered, any of the attorneys on with me today would be happy to help you. We look forward to seeing you next time right here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and and life sciences video podcast.